It's a thirsty start to the week, and we've got just the topic to quench it. Motley Fool Money starts now. I'm Chris Hill, and I'm joined by Motley Fool Senior Analyst Jason Moser. Thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. Let's talk beverages, shall we? Okay. <laughs> um, something I know a little bit about. As do I, but uh, I'm looking to learn more, because Coca-Cola put up a first quarter report with numbers that we don't normally see from a beverage company of this size. And you and I were chatting before we started recording here. Um, there are a few numbers we can get to. The one that stood out to me was organic growth up 18%. Yeah. Um, what else stood out to you? Before, before we get to sort of where this business is going over the next year, because I think that's pretty interesting when you think about some of the comments from the CEO. But just in terms of the quarter we just went through, what stood out to you? So, I mean, I would say probably that number really is is what stood out first and foremost. Just organic revenue up 18% for a business like this is not something you see all that often. Uh, I mean, I mean, it, it is worth noting. I mean, they they did see a benefit right to uh, folks getting getting back out uh, in, in into restaurants and whatnot, right? They they did notice that they did note the, the sort of on premise sales uh, performed performed well. Um, but but I mean all, all things considered, I mean it's it's this is you know this was in a world of fifty two week lows. I mean these shares are as refreshing as a cherry coke. I mean you look at how this stock is performing so far this year. It, it's been it's been tremendous. Now you stretch that timeline out a little further, and it's not it's not as impressive. Um, but but that's that's not really why you own a stock like this. I don't think in the first place. Uh, you know this is a good dividend payer. It's a stable uh, business, and, and it's it's becoming very well diversified. And that's really another thing that stood out to me, this is just a really well-diversified business. Uh, James Quincy, the CEO, um, said that there are storm clouds on the horizon for the business. Um, I take him at his word, but I will also note that they didn't change their guidance for the rest of the fiscal year, (laughs) um, which makes me wonder where, where are the pitfalls for this business? Outside of inflation, which uh, we can just safely assume is affecting every business. Yeah, well, I mean, to your point, they did reiterate guidance for for 2022, and that's you know comparing that to the 18% organic growth that they witnessed. I mean, this the, the guidance for the full year is uh, organic revenue growth of seven to eight percent. So that's a bit more of the norm. Um, but but to your to your point there on on the the pitfalls, the headwinds. I mean, you are looking right now at a a world. Full of uncertainty, right? I mean, well beyond just the the interest rate conversations that we have here. I mean, you're looking at geopolitical conflict, obviously, with with what's going on in Ukraine. Um, clearly, uh, there are their headwinds in the in the in the China market for them as as COVID continues uh, to, to to do its thing there, and and, and uh, they they continue to lock down. And uh, so, I think that between that and and what is Clearly, a very inflationary environment. Uh, you put all of that together. I mean, it's, it's understandable that they set some relatively conservative uh, expectations. But you know, this is a business because it's so well diversified. They they have areas of the business that can perform better than others uh, in in certain times, and and they do. They are able to deal with with inflation uh, through through pricing, right? I mean, they they do seem to. Possess that pricing power at least 
today. Now, the question really remains, will that be the case a year from now, right? But they do seem to be very thoughtful about it. Um, and, and one of the ways they go about it is, is in, in the way that they package things, right? It's no longer just like the 12 ounce can of Coke. I mean, they've got all sorts of different sizes and offerings to meet consumers wherever they kind of really are. And I think that that's another way that they're able to sort of deal with this inflationary environment is just through you know ramping up the number of offerings within any given product line. Um, we are nearly four years away from the time in 2018 when Coca-Cola announced it was buying Costa Coffee. Um, I believe the price tag was just over five billion dollars. Yep. And I think we said at the time, we're fans of coffee. Um, historically, you look at how Coca-Cola has grown its business. It has built out a portfolio of beverage offerings outside of the, the namesake brands. But that uh, this was not going to be sort of the typical acquisition. This is not, we're just going to put you right into our distribution network. Um, this one seemed a little bit more complicated. It seems like, based on what we saw in this most recent quarter, it's starting to pay some dividends. Oh man, is it ever? And I bet you most people probably either A, didn't know that Coca Cola had their foot in the coffee space, or B, just kind of forgot about it because it was kind of, it was an acquisition. They just sort of rolled into the, into the family and just kind of kept things going. But they saw growth in the coffee vision of 27%. And that's almost all really Costa Coffee. And Costa is. I mean, we talk a lot about Starbucks here. Costa is a globally, it's it's a very large player in the coffee space, and and so seeing uh, that paying off. I mean, I think we've pretty much made the case for coffee as an investment, right? I mean, you had me at legally addictive, <laughs> and so uh, I, I think probably going to be a very difficult market to disrupt just coffee in general. Um, so knowing that they have that. Uh, in in their portfolio as well, I think is is very encouraging. So let's zoom out from Big Soda, um, because you're right. When you look at Coca Cola and Pepsi. Um, these are stocks that are not really lighting the world on fire over the past five years. But as you said, that's not why you own stocks like this. They're really more for the ballast part of one's portfolio. Um, but when I look at another big beverage segment, beer. Um, it seems like the soda companies are just, or I should, I guess I should say, the soft drink companies because they're they're more than just soda. The soft drink companies really seem like they are. I don't know if they're better run or if the economics are better. I just know that when I look at big beer stocks, um, they are not nearly as attractive as big soda. Yeah, I, I tend to agree. I mean, I think a lot of that kind of boils down to. Beer is beer, right? It's that one thing, and it's always competing with other uh, other other offerings like wine and spirits, and and so the demand sort of ebbs and flows. But but with this with the soft drink companies like Coca Cola, um, what we're seeing is that they ultimately are are able to be more things for more consumers, right? It's not just Coca Cola. I mean, it's it's Coca Cola, it's sodas, it's water, it's tea, it's coffee. Um, they are they are now dabbling in in things like hard seltzer, right? Topo Chico, I think, is is their latest offering. There, they're seeing some success in the hard seltzer space as well. Where you look at something like a company we talked about last week, uh, Boston Beer, which uh, 
perfectly good business, but but they have witnessed over the last several years a lot of challenges in beer, right? And for a company that is called Boston Beer, they are focused on what now they are moving in, and they they refer to it this way. They call it beyond beer, right? They're they're moving beyond beer, and so you see uh, more more investments in things like cider and hard seltzer. Um, but still, they're kind of stuck to that one demographic, right? And and so when you see the competitive jockeying with things like spirits and wine, and then you look over on the other side, you see the beverage companies like Coca Cola and their ability to really fulfill demand in all corners of the globe. Uh, it, it's not hard to understand why those businesses seem to be performing better because it just, just seems like they're catering to a far larger market opportunity. Is a positive catalyst for Budweiser, Molson Coors, and even to some extent Pepsi and Coke as well, um, more venues opening up, more live events? Um, because certainly you go back in time two years. It was the exact opposite. I mean, we saw Coca-Cola and Pepsi slashing guidance because it is more profitable for them to sell their product in stadiums and concert venues than it is to sell cases. I mean, it definitely feels like these are tailwinds that are going to help. For sure. Um, I mean, we'll get some more ideas as to actually how they quantify that over the coming quarters. Uh, but, but yeah, I mean, I think I think your point is well taken there. And, and all of these beverage companies, they they cater, you know, to the consumer in the home, but also the the on premise, and, and that on premise can be can be quite lucrative uh, in, in in a lot of cases. And so I suspect that'll be that'll be uh, those those will be some tailwinds that we'll we'll uh, we'll learn more about here in the next couple of uh, couple of quarters. Last day, and then I'll let you go. Um, Pepsi reports tomorrow, I believe. Um, safe to assume that um, we're going to see, if not similar results out of Pepsi, perhaps similar comments regarding the uh, potential storm clouds on the horizon. I would imagine so. I think these are two businesses. They they remind me a lot of Lowe's and Home Depot, right? They they are very similar in what they do. Um, the neat thing about Pepsi um, is the salty snacks division, right? I mean, there is a little bit more of of a, of a of an overall food company there in Pepsi with with you know things like Quaker and Frito Lay and all that. Um, so it's a little bit more difficult to manage, right? And they're, and they're going to be subject to some 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 different cost pressures when it comes to to inflation. But yes, I, I imagine we'll hear uh, more or less similar comments. Jason Moser, thanks for being here. Thank you. If you're like me, you've been getting more mail lately from the companies in your portfolio. Proxy voting season is here, which means it's time to make your voice heard on the boards of directors overseeing your companies. Break down how to review board members, as well as some of the other big issues around proxy voting. Here's Motley Fool Senior Analyst Maria Gallagher and Alice Lomax. I'm Maria Gallagher here, and I am thrilled to be talking with Alice Lomax. Together, we are part of the Corporate Governance Initiative here at The Motley Fool. So, we're going to be taking some time to talk through different elements of proxy season, which is about to start. So, hi, Alice. It's so good to see you. It's so good to see you, too. Thanks, Maria. So, first off, can you explain a little bit about what the two of us are doing during this proxy season? 
Well, we are looking through the proxy statements of um, a lot of Motley Fool companies. And um, for people who don't know, proxy statements are associated with companies' annual meetings. And that is where shareholders can get information on CEO compensation, executive compensation, the board of directors, auditors, and shareholder proposals. So we are looking through a lot of those proxy statements and getting ready to do our votes. Perfect. And so we are going to actually talk through this really great email question we got from Liz. She starts with some common questions that we've both been getting a lot of. So every year I struggle with the conviction that my voice should be heard, but also with the questions about how to adequately understand the issues. Do we think it's important to, for small shareholders to participate in the votes? How should we evaluate board members, executive pay deals, accounting firms? The easiest votes are generally the shareholder proposed ones, but how can I best uh, inform myself about people and the issues? The company's statements don't seem to be the most objective, and the default is always to vote with management. So there are a lot of great questions, lots of great elements within that. So to start, Alice, do you think it's important for small shareholders to participate in these votes, or do you think proxy voting is worth your time? I absolutely do. I think it is something that actually you know, here at The Fool, we are big believers in being part owners of our companies, holding for the long term. So making our voices heard through that voting process is super, super important. Um, having been here for 18 years and following corporate governance over the years, I can say that, you know, 18 years ago, you know, shareholder votes generally did not go against management. But in, in recent years, we're seeing a lot more shareholder voice in terms of you know, double-digit percentage votes on certain proposals. Where, you know, last year with ExxonMobil, we saw a really interesting, you know, shareholder vote against management in that case for engine number one. Um, we've seen, you know, CEO pay packages getting voted down. Um, so that just goes to show that, you know, it is part of the democratic process of being part owner of a public company, and it it just is a very important thing to do to make your voice heard on some of the most important issues. Of over time. Exactly. And I'll just add to that, that you, it kind of feels overwhelming to think, well, you know, my vote's so small, it's never going to become a majority. But I think it's important to note that with these types of votes, it doesn't have to be a majority. If maybe they get 10, 15% of votes, that's enough for management to really take stock and really revamp what they're talking about and come up with different proposals for the next year, because they don't want to get to a point where there is a majority. So they will try and combat that if they see, you know, a good amount of people voting that way. So it does really matter, I think. The second part of this question talks about how to evaluate board members and management as well. So for board, uh, I'll look at their experience. So does it all seem very similar? It's common to really see board members who have experience working in private equity, venture capital, but is that the whole board? I think that's good and interesting experience, but if it's the background of everyone, it doesn't imply that there are those differences of experience and opinions we want in a boardroom. If they work at a different company, how related is their company to the overall mission and growth of the company that you are studying? Will they bring in opinions that will help push management, lend expertise, or does it feel like kind of a random company that doesn't really have very much to do with the company that you're studying? I also look at the gender and ethnic breakdowns of the boards and the diversity reflected in the overall makeup of the, of the board and other boards that these people are sitting on, and if that con conflicts or it seems like they're overboarded. 
For management, I spend a lot of time looking at incentives and compensation. If you look at the median to CEO worker pay ratio, which is if you do command F in most proxies and type in median, you can actually really easily find it. It shows not only how well the CEO is compensated, but how they treat their general employees, which I think really speaks volumes. You can look at Glassdoor reviews, you can look at ratings, but money really talks. The average CEO to worker pay compensation ratio in 2020 was 351 to 1, according to the Economic Policy Institute. So understanding the compensation structure for the people who are the biggest decision makers of a company really helps me determine how I feel about the future growth of this company and how I feel those conversations are happening at the highest level. Is there anything that I missed, Alice, that you would like to add? I don't think so. I strongly agree with everything that you said, um, how important it is to look at the board and yeah, make sure that there are, like you said, different different types of experience, different tenures. You know, if you see a board where there are too many people who've been there for a very long time, that's not great. You know, you want a good mix of, of you know, trying to avoid things getting too chummy over too many years and absolutely agree that, that how the CEO and executives are compensated and you know whether the board is kind of keeping the right checks and balances all of that is super crucial so totally agree so then she asked a little bit about how to get the best unbiased information. And I think that that's a really important element of thinking about proxy voting because you want to understand both what management's saying and then kind of what they're not saying, being able to read in between the lines. So what are some of the places you look for that um, information, Alice? Well, you know, I got to say, you know, the news media, you know, they will cover some of the highest, you know, the highest profile types of, you know, cases of things that are going on with companies. Um, proxy preview and as you sow, um, that proxy preview is actually an as you sow project where they go through what kinds of issues are, are being, you know, posed to companies during the year. Um, you know, there are proxy advisors out there like ISS and Glass Lewis and, and investors can actually get rough corporate governance scores from ISS if they go to Yahoo Finance, put the ticker symbol in, and you can get some scores on, you know, risks of the board, CEO compensation, and that that sort of thing. And Harvard Law School, Law School on corporate governance is a good place to get an idea of what's going on, you know, generally in the corporate governance arena. That's always a good source. Um, but totally agree that, you know, the company's definitely, you know, there's definitely, you know, their side of things in the proxy statement. And when it comes to shareholder proposals, I always think it's so important to read the proposal and management's response and, you know, really put a critical eye on, you know, on what's going on there and, you know, make that decision accordingly. Yeah, I also would say, I think when you're thinking, when you're reading through those proxies, looking at companies within a similar sector to kind of have compare and contrast of what are some sustainability reports, what are some companies showing, what are some companies not showing and comparing and contrasting and creating kind of a benchmark in your mind for a sector is really helpful, as well as all of those great sources that Alice cited. I look at AFL-CIO, which stands for the American Federation of Labor and Congress of Industrial Organizations. And so you can type in tickers and see management and compensation breakdowns. Again, that median to uh, CEO worker pay ratio, I think is one of the most important metrics you can look at. And so that is really easily accessed there as well. So finally, so this is something that, like I said, Alice and I will be spending a lot of time in the next couple of months. Proxy season is usually kind of May to July. So we'll be spending a lot of the next couple of months thinking about this. So Alice, what are you interested in watching? What are you excited for, for this proxy season? 
Well, personally, I think that um, some of the biggest issues that we're going to be seeing uh, brought up in proxy season this year are climate risk and how companies are disclosing you know, climate change information, sustainability information, and also diversity type of things. You know, how are companies, are they, you know, disclosing their, their workplace breakdowns and, and goals and metrics around diversity and inclusion? I think those are going to be two areas to watch for. And as always, CEO pay, which as you, you know, we talk about inflation a lot these days, but there's been inflation in CEO pay for many decades. So um, the CEO compensation is always a, a big, a big thing to watch. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that when we're seeing this rise, and we've seen the past probably five, 10 years, this rise of people's interest in ESG style of investing. So we're really seeing shareholders are interested more in transparency from these bigger corporations. And I think that's the thing is looking through sustainability reports. And even if a company isn't perfect, if they're honest, and if they're not trying to shy away from being transparent about their numbers and their metrics, I always really think that that says, speaks volumes about the company culture, the way the company is run and management takes taking accountability as opposed to just saying, we're perfect, just trust us, saying we're not great at these four things and here's why and here's how we're trying to get better. I always really respect when management does that. So I really enjoy looking at through all of those sustainability reports and those proxy reports. So thank you so much for coming and speaking with me today, Alice and Liz. Thank you so much for your email. I really appreciate it. Thank you. This is great. If you want to email the show, drop a note to podcasts at fool.com. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.